Good morning, Christ Bible Church. My name is Chuck Oltman. I'm a pastor and elder here at Christ Bible Church. It's my pleasure, my privilege to bring us God's word this morning. So what do you think is the most important thing about a person? Their appearance, maybe, their personality, their skill set, their connections, their net worth, maybe the number of followers they have on Instagram, or maybe some combination of those things. Well, today, as we examine the text, we'll, we'll get some sense of how God answers that question. But before we dive into the text, I want to take just a few minutes here this morning and set the scene. Uh, this will be a brief refresher for those of you who are, have been with us through 1 Kings. And if you're, if you're joining us today for the first time, welcome. And I hope this will give you a chance to, to, uh, to be situated, to kind of set the scene for the text that we'll go through. Um, so how we got here so far, God created everything and it was good. Actually, it was very good. And then man rebelled against God. And then God instituted this redemption plan for his rebellious people. And that will pick up that story uh, briefly with Abram, Abraham. Uh, God chose him, uh, sent him to the land of Canaan, and then promised that he would make him a great nation that would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. After Abraham, there was Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Joseph. Joseph ended up in Egypt, uh, 400 years in slavery. Moses led the people out of Egypt. Uh, they ended up briefly after their departure from Egypt at Mount Sinai, where they were met there by God. And God established them as his covenant people. He said, I will be your God if you will be, or you will be my people. And he said, but you must be faithful to me. You must, you must do what I tell you to do. So God gave his covenant people uh, the Ten Commandments, ten words, and a lot of other instructions on how to relate properly to him as their God and how to relate properly to others as well. Item one in that list of ten words was, you must not worship other gods. Deuteronomy 5 uh, highlights that. God speaking to his people in that way says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, took that first commandment and said of it, he says, as this is the first commandment, it's the very first, the highest, and the best from which all other commandments proceed, in which they exist and by which they are directed and measured. So in saying that, he's saying you can't, the rest of the stuff that comes after this first one, you can't violate any of those without first violating rule one, don't worship other gods. After Moses, Joshua led the people into the, into the promised land. Uh, then they were led by judges over a period of time, followed by the cry of the people to give them a king, uh, which he did. He gave them Saul, followed by David, and now we're to Solomon, king number three. They're still in this covenant relationship that was established with God on Mount Sinai. I will be your God, you will be my people. And again, the first and foremost requirement in that covenant was you must not worship other gods. And as 1 King, Kings opens, as we've been through the book, David dies and then Solomon becomes king. It's a bit messy, but eventually his kingdom is established. And then Solomon builds God's temple. Solomon builds his own house, establishes secure borders, uh, gets wives, horses, and gold, amongst other things. And this is exactly at the point in, in this covenant relationship with God where God could use these people now to, as the nation of Israel, 
to actually be a blessing to the rest of the earth as he told them they would be. And it's also the time when the seeds of half-heartedness that Solomon had planted early in his reign, think the marriage to the Egyptian princess, think not dealing with the people who wanted to worship God in the high places, these seeds began to yield the weeds of disobedience. Uh, two weeks ago, Zach took us through the early stages of this. Uh, remember God's commands to the future king on what he should and shouldn't do that uh, Zach highlighted for us out of Deuteronomy 17. Kings should not get a lot of horses. They should not get their horses from Egypt. They shouldn't accumulate a lot of gold, and they shouldn't accumulate a lot of wives. Amazingly, if you remember when we went through 1 uh, Kings 10, Solomon checked every one of those boxes. The things that you were not supposed to do, he did. And so, and last week, Randy walked us through the first nine verses in this chapter, chapter 11, highlighting Solomon's love for foreign women and his worship of other gods, both of which violated God's commandment and, his, and demonstrated how Solomon's heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God. But remember also that these behaviors that Solomon exhibited they weren't the root problem. At Mount Sinai, uh, God has shown the people this road to him. At Sinai, he said, here's the path. Walk in this way, and you will follow me. You will know me. I will be your God. But this road, if you think of this road, it also has exits on it, off-ramps, if you would, to God's revealed path. And there's big LED signs on these exits. Horses, Egypt. Uh, gold, women, and Solomon saw those, and those exits themselves weren't the actual problem. The problem was those all led to the violation of rule one, the worship of other gods. So as these Solomon weeds grew up over a period of time, uh, it, it, the weeds got bigger, if you would. Uh, Solomon reigned for 40 years. He had four recorded encounters with God, two face-to-face -face in, the term, in, uh, in dreams and visions, and two that were other than that, uh, one of which we will look at today. They were in 1 Kings 3, 1 Kings 6, 1 Kings 9, and then today in 1 Kings 11. And if you get a chance this week, go back through 1 Kings and look at those four encounters and see if you see some change in God's uh, demeanor and how he how he addresses Solomon and where that conversation goes. It's pretty fascinating. But today is that fourth interaction, and the timing, the exact timing of it is unknown. There's not a good temporal marker that says it was at this point in Solomon's reign. But if you look at the whole arc of his reign, this is probably, uh, well, certainly is after year 25 of his 40 years as king. So it's late in his, uh, in his kingship. And the text says, when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart. So that is, so we're clearly at the tail end of his time as king. As we read through the text this morning, I want you to think, think through it. It kind of, it falls neatly into five pieces, if you would. Piece one is verses uh, 9 through 13, which are God's judgment on Solomon. Uh, piece number two is this external pressure that rises up from the south. That's verses 14 through 22. And then this external pressure that comes down from the north, that's 23 through 25. And then in the midst of that, there's also a pressure from inside, an internal pressure that God uh, raises up against Solomon. That's verses 26 through 40. And then finally, Solomon's death and the transition of the kingship there at the very end, verses 41 through 43. 
So with that as background, kind of get you up to speed with where we are in the story, let's dive into God's word. I'll, I'll read all of uh, God's judgment, the, verse, the verses 9 through 13, and then selectively through the rest of the chapter as we work our way through. So here we are in verse 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give you one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Then verse 14, then the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal house of Edom. Then if you skip down to verse 23, God also raised up an adversary to him, Reason, the son of Iliada, who had fled from his master, Hadad Ezer, king of Zobah. And then verse 26, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zeradah, a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. And then finally verse 41 to the end. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem was over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning as your people in this place, Lord, and we sit under the teaching of your word. And Father, we need you to do what only you can do. Father, we need our minds to be turned towards you. Father, we need our affections, the things that we love to be turned towards you. Lord, we need our wills to be turned towards you. Lord, we need all of us to be yours today. Father, we pray that as we work through this text that you would do that in us. Father, that we would become people who are wholehearted followers of you, not half-hearted followers of you. Lord, that we would become people who love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, that we would love what you love and we pursue the things of your kingdom that we might have life in you and grow in our life with you and that you might uh, show us your goodness in that way. So Father, please do this thing that only you can do Make us like you, Lord, for your glory and for our good. For it's in your most holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. So with the remainder of our time this morning, I'd like to ask and answer two questions. Question number one, what happened to Solomon? Uh, specifically, what did God think of Solomon's leadership in life, of the path that he chose? And then question number two, how can we avoid ending up on that same path? So what happened to Solomon? And then how do we not end up where he ended up? So uh, question number one, what happened to Solomon? What was the end result of his reign as king? Well, I think the entirety of this passage, all of 9 through 43, uh, speak to that. It describes a faithful God who does what he said he would do. 
Think back to God's promise to David when he made him king, that he, David, would not build the temple that David wanted to build, but that when you die, your son, which now is Solomon, will sit on the throne, and, and this is 2 Samuel 7, starting with verse 13. He said, he, Solomon, will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom, Solomon's kingdom, forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. So what follows in the text is just that. Uh, God, how God, faithful to his covenant and to the promises he made to his people, how he lovingly disciplines his king, Solomon, and his people, Israel, desiring them to return to him. He's trying to get them to turn back. And essentially, this first part, verses 9 to 13, is God's judgment per 2 Samuel that we just read on Solomon and on Israel. Essentially, he says, I, God, have made this very clear to you in our previous conversations. And this is at least the fourth time that we've had this talk. And, and do not violate rule number one. Do not worship other gods. Don't chase after other gods. But you did. As a matter of fact, you've made this your practice, is what the text says. So as I promised, I will tear the kingdom from you. But as, because of my relationship with your father, for David's sake, I won't do it until you're dead. And I will leave you two tribes. I'll leave you, uh, just, just so you can work through the math here. It's not, uh, it's not straightforward. But when the author talks about two tribes, then really only talks about one. I think you can look at it like this. Solomon comes from the tribe of Judah, which is the, the promised tribe that the king would come from. So that's a given. Judah's a given. And when he says, I will give you another tribe, he, he talks about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is actually in the land that was apportioned to Benjamin. So that tribe is included as well. So uh, Judah and Benjamin become the two tribes in the south, which then are how the kingdom splits, as we'll see here in a second. Then uh, verses 14 through 40 detail exactly how this tearing away of the kingdom will occur. And it, it actually happens in three person-led movements, if you would, uh, Hadad, Reason, and Jeroboam. So let's walk through those. Uh, this is the rod of discipline that was promised by God to David. This is rod of discipline number one, Hadad. It starts with verse 14, and the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon Hadad the Edomite. This, uh, the backstory to this is in uh, verses 15 through 22 in our text. And this is actually a scar, an old scar, left by a wound inflicted on them, uh, on the Edomites, by David and Joab. It's, it's detailed in 2 Samuel chapter 8, starting with verse 13. Essentially, David and uh, Joab, they'd conquered Edom, and they had killed most of the males in Edom as a part of that conquering Hadad had escaped as a young child. He'd fled to Egypt, ended up marrying the Pharaoh's uh, sister-in-law while he was there, and he returned to Edom, eventually bent on revenge for what David and Joab, what Israel had done to his kingdom and to his family. So that's rod of discipline number one. Rod of discipline number two is uh, a man named Reason. Verse 23, God had also raised up an adversary to him, Reason, the son of Eliada. So uh, the backstory there is verses 24 and 25. It's a shorter story, but it's another scar that's left over from uh, David's reign. 
And again, in 2 Samuel chapter 8, that, uh, it's briefly detailed there. And essentially, after uh, Reason's encounter with uh, David, he rounded up a bunch of marauding men, a, bu- a band of men there, and went back to Damascus, which was in the north there, eventually becoming the king of Syria. And then verse 25 describes Reason's disposition towards Solomon and towards Israel. Verse 25 says, He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, doing harm as Hadad did. And he loathed Israel and reigned over Syria. So, Hadad, Reason, and now Rod of Discipline number three, the stripes of the sons of men, Jeroboam. Jeroboam is the greatest threat of the three of these. Uh, verse 26 says, again, he was the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zerida. And unlike, and, and, and he lifted up his hand against the king. And unlike Hadad and Reason, uh, Jeroboam was a problem entirely of Solomon's uh, making. He was a gifted, Jeroboam was a gifted, capable leader that came to Solomon's attention while he was doing some repair work on some defensive structures there in Jerusalem. And he was put in charge eventually because of his leadership abilities over the, uh, the tribe, the, all the, the forced labor in the tribe of Joseph, which consisted of Manasseh and Ephraim. Ephraim was the dominant northern tribe, so this is a big responsibility uh, because he's a gifted man. Uh, eventually, the prophet Ahijah uh, meets him, Jeroboam, just the two of them, has a garment, tears the garment into 12 pieces, and then prophesies to, Ahi- uh, to Jeroboam that he will be the king, or he'll be the leader over 10 tribes in the north. He gives him 10 of the pieces of cloth, but he, he keeps the two to be led by Solomon's son. And Ahijah makes the reason for this clear in verse 33. He says, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules as David his father had. So this is his judgment against Solomon that should sound familiar. Interestingly, uh, Ahijah also tells Jeroboam that God will build for him a sure house, that you can stay in this place as king of these northern ten tribes if you walk in my ways and, and do what is right. Uh, and we'll see as the story unfolds how that goes. And then just as a uh, preview, it does not go well. Um, so Solomon found out that they'd had this meeting and tried to kill Jeroboam to eliminate the threat to his kingship. But Jeroboam fled to Egypt, and he stayed there until Solomon died. Elijah's prophecy defines this tribal perforation, if you would, that begins this, uh, that defines the line that will separate the north from the south after uh, Solomon's death. So you think of it like a package you get from Amazon that has that little perforation pre-cut so that when you actually exert pressure and tear, it tears cleanly. That's the line that now has been established between the two. And after Solomon's death, the king's divided heart will result in a divided kingdom. The, the chapter 11 closes, verses 41 through 43, with a summary of Solomon's reign. Said he, he did more stuff. It's all recorded in this other book, the Acts of Solomon. Uh, he reigned over Jerusalem 40 years. And then he closes with verse 43. And Solomon slept with his fathers, and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, 
reigned in this place. And this, that close becomes the template by which each king, each successive king now after both in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom is assessed in the books of First and Second Kings. If I could have a slide, please. I know you were wondering. Uh, and you may see this as sort of a cheesy attempt just to find a way to put a slide in here. And I won't say that you're completely wrong. But I do have a reputation to maintain here. So... Here's uh, Hadad from the south. Here's the kingdom of Edom. So he's, this is the southern push. And here is uh, Zobah, the, the kingdom that eventually that, he come, that reason comes out of. And eventually he goes to Damascus and becomes the king of all of Assyria and exerts this pressure while Solomon is living, exerts this pressure while Solomon is living. And then this whole centerpiece, the Jeroboam piece, comes up after Solomon is dead. The whole point being that this is exactly what God said. He, I will pressure this way because I want these people to return to me. Um, so, but before we finish with this and, and move on to question number two, I, I just want to look at this and see if there's anything we can learn about the character and nature of God in this passage, and clearly there is, and how he dealt with Solomon. And I think there's at least four things. One is we see the faithfulness of God. We see that he would fulfill his word. He told David he would do this, and he did it. Number two, we see the grace of God. Even in the midst of Solomon's and Israel's failure, there is hope. David's throne will still be occupied by somebody uh, from his family. Uh, number three, we see the power of God. We see God is able to do exactly what he said he would do by moving nations and peoples and all these big pieces on the map to affect his will and what he said would happen. And then finally, we see as we have seen and will see repeatedly in, in 1 Kings that Solomon is not the promised king and neither are any that come after him. The king who would come, the promised king who is supposed to come and make all things right. Solomon is clearly not that guy, but a pointer to the one who is and would come. So now question number two, how do we avoid Solomon's fate? How do we finish well? Uh, well, we've seen the answer to this already in 1 Kings. Uh, the presenting sin was worshiping other gods. But the root problem was actually Solomon's heart. Uh, 1 Kings 11.4, which Randy took us through last, last week, expresses this core issue very succinctly. And his heart, Solomon's heart, was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. So David's heart was wholly true to the Lord his God, and Solomon's heart was not. But wait, David? Do you mean that guy who bedded another man's wife, got her pregnant, and then killed her husband in order to, to cover up? That David? Is that the guy we're talking about here? Uh, is that what it looks like to, be holy, to have a wholly true heart towards God? Um, well, clearly just looking at that example, the issue was not sin, because both David and Solomon had sinned. Both of them had sinned egregiously. They had sinned in, in big ways. So what, what difference does, does the disposition of their hearts make in their relationship with God? Let's look at the responses that they had. Look at how they responded when they were confronted with their sin. So when, if you think back, or if you remember the story uh, back in 2 Samuel 12, after David had done those bad things and Nathan the prophet shows up, tells him the story about a man and his lamb and 
and all these things. And David says, oh, that guy should be killed. And then, and then Nathan says, David, that man is you. And, and David's response when confronted directly with his sin was he owned it. He said, I have sinned against God. He throws himself on the mercies of God, asks for forgiveness, writes this beautiful psalm, Psalm 51, which articulates his heart and his desire to be right with God and how terribly felt and how he'd wronged God in this way. And, uh, and that was his response. When Solomon is confronted by God in the text that we read today, when God told him, since you have made this your practice, this pursuing of other gods, I will tear the kingdom away from you. Solomon's response, that's it. Just this, silence. There was nothing. There was crickets. There was no re response at all. So as Christians, we have a name for what David did and Solomon didn't do. We call this thing repentance. So evidently, uh, being wholehearted towards God, which David was, involves being willing to repent. So what exactly does this repentance thing encompass? Well, let me go back to the road analogy. Remember the road of Mount Sinai that led, led to God. The fact that God, the creator of all things, uh, had established a way to live, a way to walk with him, a way to live a life that actually leads to him. This is the picture that is formed in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, we get on this road as, as, as uh, followers of Jesus by doing just that. When we commit to following Jesus, we get on this road, on this path to life. We stay on the road by continuing to do the things that he says we should do. He's, he's given us his word that gives us all these details and what it looks like to rightly relate to him and to right, rightly relate to others. And it's summed up very neatly by Jesus in the two great commandments. Love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others uh, as you love yourself. Love your neighbor. So that's how you stay on the road. But what happens when you get off the road? Uh, how do we get back on the road? Well, that's this idea of repentance. So what, do, what does it mean biblically when we talk about repentance? Well, in the, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew words that are translated repent focus on this idea of turning. And typically it's from turning from some type of sin and turning back to God. In the New Testament, we see much the same uh, sense of the word as it was in the Old Testament. A sense that involves a change in our thinking, a change in direction, a change in how our life is lived, a change that involves turning from one belief uh, or way of living to another. So when we talk about repenting, think turn, think turning. Uh, but repentance is, is not just something that we do intellectually. It is, uh, it's, 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 as we've talked about in, in the last several weeks when we talk about the biblical concept of heart, the heart is the deepest center of the person. It includes the mind, what we think. It includes uh, our affections, what it is that we love. And it includes our will, what it is that we do. The heart ha has all those pieces in it. So correspondingly, this idea of biblical repentance is not just something that we do in our mind. It is something that involves all aspects of the heart. So intellectually, in the mind, it's intellectually seen that by the grace of God, the need to change direction from our current path away from God back towards God. Uh, in our affections, it's desiring that turn back to God. It's wanting that. It's loving God enough to, to want to turn in that way. And then the will is involved at all. It's actually the process of reorient, reorienting us in that way towards God. Well, how exactly does this work? Uh, 
Well, back, back to our picture of this road that leads to God. You know, David is on the road, and he sees this big LED sign that says, sexual pleasure, the path to the good life, next exit. Uh, and as David walks in this road and sees that sign, he has a decision to make. And I think Jeremiah uh, chapter 2, verse 13 succinctly says what that decision is for him. Uh, God is talking to his people, and he says, I have these two things against you, my people. You have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, to dig, to hew for yourself cisterns, holes in the ground, that, to dig these yourself. And these things cannot actually hold water. So you turn away from living water, which is me, and you go dig your own holes and think that you can find water there. That's the decision that David has at this point. He's here, I can, I can either pursue this fountain of living water and stay on the path, or I can get off the road here and go dig my own cistern and, and try to find things that won't satisfy me. So uh, what happens to David is he gets there, he actually decides to take the exit and pursue the thing that is not God. He's confronted by Nathan while he's over there at his cistern, and uh, he turns when confronted, he turns back away from the dry cistern that can't satisfy his thirst, and return, he returns to this fountain of living water. Uh, Solomon, on the other hand, uh, takes the exit marked foreign women. Life is found here, and he never turns back. So, again, why did it go this way? Well, it went this way because David was a man after God's own heart. That's why God picked him in the first place. He wanted God more than anything else in his life. He was willing to suffer the pain of dealing with his own sin in this process of repentance. He changed his mind, returned to what he loved, and acted decisively. Solomon did none of those things. So for us, the decision is very much the same. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are on the path to life. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself says, I am the way the truth, and the life. But we're on this road, and we have all our own bright LED exit signs. Happiness here. Find your true self. Get off this narrow road to your exclusive God and find the real God who is in everything and is everywhere. That's actually the exit to Sedona. Uh, there, there's also signs that say money, sex, power. These are old signs that just keep getting recirculated all the time. Or there's a sign that says, L.A. Lakers, next exit. That's only if you're an unrepentant Randy. <laughs> but the goal of these signs, these temptations, is the same for David and Solomon as it is for us, to get us to pursue and worship other gods. So what do we do? How do we, how do we end up like David wholeheartedly pursuing God and not Solomon? How do we finish well? Well, God gives us resources in that moment, in that decision-making moment, to pursue him, to deal with temptation and repent. He gives us his word. Uh, the creator God of the universe has seen fit to provide us with a detailed description of what he is like and how we should live for him. We should take that word and we should study it. We should memorize it. We should meditate on it. We should let that shape and mold our hearts. It should affect what we love. It should move us in ways that desire us to follow him with the choices that we make. 
Interestingly, God gave the same advice to Israel's kings. In Deuteronomy 17, that passage that, uh, that Psalm was so faithful to do all those things he wasn't supposed to do, right after that section, this is what kings shouldn't do. And then in verses 18 through 20 of Deuteronomy 17, it says, this is what kings should do. And basically, God says the king should write a copy of the law. He should read it every day. He should learn through the law to fear the Lord and to obey his commandments and not to be proud so that you don't turn to the right or the left, so you don't take these exits, so you stay on the path. And if that advice, if that direction of those commandments were good enough for the king, they should be good enough for us. In addition to his word, God has given us his spirit. He's given us not only what we should do, but he's given us a way as believers to actually do it. We are empowered by his spirit to walk in his way as we submit to him and to his desires for our life. Galatians 5.16 says, walk in the spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Don't take the exits. And he's also given us each other. Uh, David had Nathan. Solomon evidently, as near as we can tell, had no one. But we all need someone in our lives that is closer than a brother or closer than a sister. Someone who's willing to walk with us, even in the dark places. Even and especially when we have willfully left the path of life. We need someone to go with us off this exit ramp, willing to peer over the edge of the cistern that we have dug for ourselves and tell us, it's empty. There's nothing in there. Come with me and let's get back on the road. We need those people in our life. So you should be in community. You should have friends like that that will say, don't do that. Or if you have, let's get back on the road. God has provided those resources for us to stay on the path. And over the last few weeks, we have asked you to encourage you to consider what your idols might be, what empty cisterns uh, your particular exit signs might be pointing to. Well, maybe it is, uh, it could be any number of things as we've touched on. It could be uh, this idol of morality that Randy talked about last week, this, uh, this idea of our own righteousness and actually the pride that often goes with that. We commonly refer to that as self-righteousness. That's a particularly dangerous idol, dangerous idol because if you are that way, you are more than likely not willing to listen to someone who tells you, uh, get back on the path. You're will, unwilling to accept correction. Or your LED sign might be the approval of others. That might be the thing that, that leads you off the path. It could be the security of money, the enticement of power, the thrill of physical pleasure. It could be the desire to be true to who you are, uh, as is said in our culture today, apart from God. Well, I don't know what your particular exit sign says, but I do know where the, that exit leads. It leads to a worship of something other than the one true God. And I also know that God has provided us with the resources to deal with that, to stay on the path. In 2 Peter uh, 1, 3, and 4, God says like this, I have provided you with all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, so that you may become like him, having escaped from the corruption, having stayed on the path and not taken the exits, 
that is in the world because of sinful desire, because of bent affections. So stay on the path to life. And when you find yourself in the desert looking for th- uh, to satisfy your thirst that cannot be quenched apart from God, use the resources that God has provided to get back on the path. Repent. Return to the way. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning that you have revealed yourself to us so specifically and so lovingly, and you have given us your word to show us uh, who you are, who we are, how as sinners we are to respond to you, Lord, what path you want us on, and, and how to get back on that path. And Father, we pray that you would inform our minds with that truth, Lord, that you would empower our spirits to make choices, the little choices we make every day that determine whether we stay on the road or we exit the road. Father, empower us to choose you. And Lord, uh, make us love what you love. Make us your wholehearted followers who desire nothing more than to please the creator God of the universe. Lord, make our hearts like that. Empower us to live that way, Father, for your glory and for our good. Father, we just pray you do that in your most holy and precious name. Amen.